Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Today, we hear from American biologist and author Sandra Steingraber, giving the keynote address to the Permanent People's Tribunal session on human rights, fracking and climate change. Sandra takes a lyrical look at the interconnections between molecules, organisms, ecosystems, logistics and capitalism in the story of fracking. What an honour to serve as the opening keynote speaker for the historic Permanent People's Tribunal session on human rights, fracking and climate change. The Permanent People's Tribunal is an august international forum. Its origin story is as an investigation of human rights breaches during the war in Vietnam. Since then, its hearings have examined abridgments of human rights standards in Bhopal, India, in the Ukrainian city of Chernobyl, and most recently among the Rohingya and Kachin refugees of Myanmar. Today, we've begun an exploration into the potential human rights violation of a newish technology called unconventional high-volume hydraulic fracturing combined with horizontal drilling, so-called fracking for short. Fracking is what the industry calls it, and fracking is what the enemies of that industry both call it. Um, Fracking is a technology developed at the end of the 20th century in sparsely populated western regions of the United States using public money from taxpayers. In a line, fracking turns fresh water into a poisonous club to smash apart shale bedrock in order to extract otherwise unattainable bubbles of oil or natural gas, methane, trapped inside of that rock. Fracking has since spread east, west, north, and south, including to the densely populated regions of the northeast where I live, and to southern California, and to the breadbasket of Midwestern agricultural regions. The dramatic increase in fracking over the past decade in the United States has pushed oil and gas extraction operations into heavily populated areas. At least 6% of the U.S. population, 17.6 million Americans, now live within a mile of an active oil or gas well, a number that includes 1.4 million children and 1.1 million elderly people. At least 8.6 million people are served by drinking water source located less than a mile from from a well pad. These facts alone, along with emerging evidence revealing that fracking sites and associated fracking infrastructure are disproportionately cited in non-white, low-income, and indigenous communities, both in the United States and in countries like Argentina, Mexico, and Canada, where fracking has been exported, means that it is right and necessary to understand the potential for human exposures and accompanying adverse impacts, not only as an issue of public health, but fundamentally as an issue of human rights. My frame for this uh, keynote tonight is the biologist Rachel Carson, 
whose 1962 book, Silent Spring, about the unintended consequences of pesticides like DDT, sparked a revolution in environmental consciousness and is rightly credited as a founding force of American environmentalism. Carson makes clear that the environmental crisis is first and foremost a crisis of human rights. And it's that element of her writing that I want to foreground and embrace for our purposes tonight. Her panoramic language that takes us from crop dusters into groundwater and into the nucleus of cells is an artistic exploration in which language becomes a cinematic camera showing us the connections in the natural world that are otherwise invisible to us. So I want to take a Carsonesque approach tonight and speak to you first as a creative writer and use language as a camera to take you down into the dark heart of the planet, into the bedrock that lies beneath our feet. And I re want to rewrite for you uh, as a landscape that this bedrock of our nation is not a void, a lifeless place of inertia darkness uh, with oil and gas uh, pocked inside the rock, but rather it is a living ecosystem, a subterranean coral reef, if you will, that is teeming with life, a habitat that is animate and beautiful and is connected to the carbon cycle via metabolizing organisms who live there and thus is connected to us here at the sunlit surface. Rachel Carson reminds us that wars waged against the web of life will sooner or later transform the cells of our own bodies into battlefields. And this is also true when we turn the weapons of destruction against our nation's bedrock. So let's begin here. 400 million years ago, shallow seas overlay parts of the North American continent. One of them was in the part of the world that I live in, in North, the Northeast, and the shallow ocean um, extended from approximately where the Catskill Mountain Range now is all the way to the middle of Ohio. And I, who live in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, would have lived along its northern banks of this sea. The southern reach went all the way into West Virginia. Uh, the ocean floor became a graveyard of the organisms who lived here. And remember, 400 million years ago was before fur, before backbones, before three and four chambered hearts, before breasts, before eyeballs, before fins and flippers. So the organisms we're talking about who lived here um, were sea lilies, squid, diatoms, and plankton. Uh, and when they died, they fell to the bottom of the sea, and that ocean began to fill with silt um, because it was surrounded by mountains, and as the mountains eroded, they turned into dust. And dust changes its name when it falls into water, and then we call it silt. Mountains are full of entire periodic charts of elements. So as these mountain ranges eroded, um, the elements um, drifted with the silt into the bottom of the ocean, these are things like barium, strontium, uranium, lead, mercury. And so these elements became part of the floor of these shallow seas. So the organisms died, and they fell to the ground, to the bottom of the ocean by gravity. But because the Earth's atmosphere wasn't as oxygenated 
400 million years ago as it is now. There were not yet land plants. The organisms didn't have enough oxygen to completely decompose, so instead they turned into bubbles of methane, which is carbon with four hydrogens, or a heavier hydrocarbon molecule, um, something that we would call petroleum or, or oil. And so not just um, across the Northeast, but also in North Dakota, in California, in Oklahoma, and Texas. Um, these similar oceans existed at similar times, and, and, and these phenomenon went on. Um, so eventually then these corpses were covered over by the silt that fell upon them, and they were buried. Um, and eventually then the whole ocean floor petrified and turned from silt into shale. And these organisms were then trapped as bubbles of oil or, or natural gas inside the rock itself. And they've stayed there like that for 400 million years. Those hydrocarbon bubbles of oil and gas are the quarry of fracking. But these ancient ocean floors that became our shale bedrock are not just a graveyard. They're also a living ecosystem. They're inhabited by living organisms now. Some are bacteria, but many others occupy an ancient domain of life called archaea. And these organisms feed on the hydrocarbons that are down there. They also, some of them, feed on radioactive decay. They're strange. They have, some of them, arsenic instead of phosphorus in their DNA. And now I'm just going to speak to the, my fellow biologists in the room, and the rest of you can kind of float with this for a minute. Um, they lack electron transport systems, which is very unusual um, for organisms. We don't see that in living things uh, who live here on the Earth's surface. Um, and, and the way they can avoid oxidative stress without an electron transport system is that they actually send electrons out into the surrounding rock. They're organized into colonies in order, order to do this. And they use nanowires to send across themselves um, large number of electrons, and thus they alter the rock and change it from one element to another. So I want to pause here for a minute and make a kind of theological or philosophical query. What I'm saying is that the biologic is the creator of the abiotic. These organisms are down there a mile below our feet, making rock, altering it and reshaping it and turning it into something else. And altogether, geologists believe that these deep life organisms by a biomass actually exceed the biomass of living things here on the sunlit surface of our planet. That's why I say we need to think of our bedrock as a kind of subterranean coral reef, another world down there that we may not know much about, um, but whose destruction and poisoning may have consequences for us. So fracking uses water, 2 to 20 million gallons per frac job, um, and sends it down into that shale um, by drilling straight down into it and then turning the drill bit sideways and tunneling like a robotic mole for another mile or more. And first we send down explosives into that tunnel to start fracturing the shale. Um, but re what really widens those cracks and, and, uh, is, is water. So fresh drinking water is then sent down the hole uh, water is not compressible under high pressure, 
Um, and you can imagine how, what kind of pressures were, were, are required because the lithostatic pressure of the earth pressing down on the shale a mile or more of, of substrate above the shale bedrock has to, in order to blow that up down there, um, water has to be under immense amounts of pressure. And if it were only water that was used as the agent for fracking, it wouldn't work because as soon as you release the pressure to let the gas flow out, all of the fractures that you create, you turn the bedrock into shards at this point. They would all close up again as the weight of the earth presses down upon them. So instead, sand is added to fracking fluid, and not just any kind of sand, but silica sand, because the grains of silica sand are shaped in such a way that they resist crushing under immense pressure. So really, the, the water is used to create the fractures, but also to shoot the sand grains into the cracks created. And like tiny doorstops, they hold open those spaces so the bubble of oil or, or gas can then escape and go up the borehole after the pressure is relieved. But in order to get sand down the hole and around the bend without settling out and clogging the pipe, um, you need to thicken that water with gelling agents to move the sand around the bend and shoot it into the cracks. So gelling agents are added to fracking fluid along with things like friction reducers and anti-scaling agents. But those living organisms, those bacteria and those archaea that are down there at that depth will feed on those gelling agents and they'll grow inside the pipes and interfere with the flow of gas. And so powerful biocides are added, like glutaraldehyde, um, to fracking fluid, which is why it's so toxic, because we have to engage in a, a mass extermination campaign, an underground pesticide spraying program of the bedrock, um, in order for fracking to work. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Today, we're hearing from biologist and author Sandra Steingraber, as she uses lyrical prose to draw together the web of life that fracking is disrupting. And some of the water that's used to liberate the bubbles of oil and gas remain trapped within the fractured zone, and as such has now been permanently removed from the hydrologic cycle, forever entombed among the fractured shards. And so what does it mean that we're making water disappear in a time of a climate crisis when lack of availability of fresh water is getting more insecure? The water used to fracture shale will never again flow as a river, never again rise as mist, never again rise as sap, never become nectar attracting bees, never again blood plasma or breast milk or tears or cerebral spinal fluid or the breath of our exhaled lungs on a cold winter day or never the snowflakes on that day. Some of the water travels back up to the surface. That's called flowback fluid. And it contains not only the chemical additives that were used to turn the water into fracking fluid, but also it now contains brine, heavy metals, 
radioactive elements, all those things that were deposited by the eroding of ancient mountain ranges that are now um, inside the shale, toxic elements that wouldn't hurt anyone as long as they're trapped down below, but now we're going to bring them up to the surface. The result is a massive amount of poisonous liquid waste, and we have a problem with no solution because no technology exists to turn fracking waste back into drinkable water. Its safe containment is for eternity. It could be reused to frack another well, but not unless it's highly diluted, because the more you use it, the more salty and toxic and corrosive it becomes. So the practice is to inject it in other deep wells, um, where it has been definitively linked to earthquakes, because fracking fluid contains um, anti-friction agents. Remember, a fracking borehole is only about five inches or so in diameter, and to shoot that vast amounts of water with that kind of pressure, you need to reduce the friction. So you make the fracking fluid very slippery. But if you then inject it back down into the earth, it lubricates fault lines and, and allows rock formations to slip past each other, and that's how earthquakes are generated. We have absolute proof about this link. So this raises to me another ethical question about generational inequity. How is it right that this generation of people alive now can liquidate the bedrock and enjoy the profits from the oil and gas that we blow the bedrock up to extract and then produce toxic waste which must be curated eternally by our children and grandchildren who will receive none of the profits? But I want to widen the lens now and take an even bigger view of fracking because it really doesn't start with the drill bit screwing into the ground. It starts in the upper Midwest with the mining of frack sand. Frack sand mining has now become the number one export of the state of Wisconsin, more than cheese. So Wisconsin is exporting itself, and it's changing its landscape to do to do that. The coolies and hills and bluff of Wisconsin are disappearing. They're made of sandstone, and that sandstone is made of grains of silica sand that are hot in high demand for fracking. So you have all these frack sand mining operations going on in Minnesota and Iowa and Wisconsin and in my part of the world in downstate Illinois, where I grew up. Silica sand makes silica dust, and silica dust, like asbestos, is linked to lung cancer. It's also linked to silicosis. So although the people in the upper Midwest live far from the fracking fields, their bedrock is being extracted and blown apart to be carted off to the place in the world where I now live, to be shoved into the ground, to hold open the cracks in the destroyed bedrock of the Northeast, or taken to the fracking fields in the Bakken Shale of North Dakota or Colorado. And then where does the gas go or the oil go after it comes out of the ground? Well, there is a massive amount of infrastructure involved to take that oil and gas from the point of its extraction to wherever the burner tip is, and that takes the form of pipelines and compressor stations. 
and hundreds of underground and above-ground gas and oil storage facilities. And here in the Northwest, LNG facilities, where natural gas, through the energy-intensive process of cryogenics, is super-chilled, so it can be loaded onto tankers and taken to places where pipelines can't run, such as across the ocean. And of course, the story doesn't end there because methane leaks at every step of this process. From the moment the drill bit goes into the ground and contacts the shale, methane is pouring out of the hole. It pours out of the, the valves of every single pipeline, of every single compressor station along the way. And the result is that methane is being loaded into the atmosphere Methane, 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at being able to trap heat in our atmosphere. More methane leaks from fracking operations than we previously appreciated, which means natural gas via fracking is not any cleaner for the climate than coal, and it may be worse. Methane emissions are 20 to 60% higher than previously thought. The ongoing surge in methane levels are now driving climate impacts, and the sharp uptick in global methane levels since 2006 is largely attributable to fossil fuel extraction processes, notably fracking. So let's pause here for a minute and consider these molecules of methane in the atmosphere and remind ourselves that carbon, when we talk about decarbonizing and loading the atmosphere with carbon, Carbon is not the first name for carbon dioxide. Carbon comes in two flavors, carbon dioxide and methane. And these are two naturally occurring components of our Earth that actually make life on Earth possible. So let's just pause for a moment and consider that. So methane comes from dead things. Carbon dioxide is our exhaled breath of all living things. And both of these molecules have the ability when struck by thermal radiation, which is heat, to vibrate. So when methane and carbon dioxide are in our atmosphere, and then the Earth's surface turns away from the sun at night, the light from the sun, the light energy, entirely vanishes. But the heat energy does not entirely vanish. If it did, we would all it, it would be like the Disney movie Frozen, our oceans would turn into ice rinks every night. Our blood plasma would freeze stiff. That doesn't happen because two molecules, methane and CO2, when the sun's heat energy bounces off the surface of the earth and bounces back into the atmosphere and encounters a molecule of CO2 or methane, those molecules begin to vibrate. And their vibration traps the heat. That's what we mean when we say it's a greenhouse heat-trapping gas. So these vibrational molecules all dancing all night long up in the sky prevent us from dying every night. So the living, the exhaled breath, and the, and the dead, the living and the dead conspire together to make life possible on Earth. So good that we have greenhouse gases. And by the way, of the two molecules, CO2 lasts longer in our atmosphere than methane. Methane is more potent at trapping heat, but it will fall apart after about a decade, whereas CO2 goes on trapping heat for a century, which means your exhaled breath will outlive you. You will be dead and gone, but your breathing 
your whole lifetime of breathing has changed the chemistry of the atmosphere, and those molecules of your exhaled breath, representing all the things you did to metabolize all your life, will go on trapping heat for the people and all the living organisms, all of our relatives, to come after us. And of course you know, through the miracle of photosynthesis, that some of that CO2 will be taken out of the atmosphere by our friends, the plants, who take them through their stomata of their leaves, remember that in seventh grade, the stomata, and combine them with uh, sunlight and water from the earth up through the roots, and through the miracle of photosynthesis, spin that into sugar and form the beginning of the food chain. So for all of the earth's history, that photosynthesis and the exhaled breath of all the animals have existed in a kind of balance. But 150 years ago, when we exhumed the cemeteries of Devonian animals and plants in this unholy trinity of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and gas, and we lit those bodies on fire in crematoria that we call power plants, we loaded up our atmosphere with 40% more CO2 than pre-industrial levels and almost triple the amount of methane. So now at night, we have many more dancing, vibrating molecules, and it's like a blanket that we can't kick off. And the consequences, as you know, involve melting ice caps, rising seas, and of course the acidification of the ocean because CO2 turns into carbonic acid uh, when it falls into ocean water. Our plankton stocks are now in trouble because of rising acidity levels and also because of rising surface temperatures of the ocean. Phytoplankton provide us half of the oxygen in our atmosphere. Land plants provide the other half. And so one out of every two breaths we breathe is brought to us by the world's plankton. And if the plankton are in trouble, my friends, we are in trouble as well. And if you're hearing the science for the first time, then that's a failure of my field. If you hear about the falling Dow industrial stocks, but not about the plankton stocks and how they're doing, ask why we have a public conversation about economic stocks, but not about ecological stocks. We heard there an edited extract of Sandra Steingraber's keynote address to the Permanent People's Tribunal, session on human rights, fracking and climate change, held in May 2018. The tribunal held its hearings at Oregon State University in the US. Recordings of the tribunal and submissions made to it from around the world can be found at www.tribunalonfracking.org. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.